One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Lions at Ravens. Kickoff Sunday, October 22nd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 43. Game Overview by Hilo. This game features two teams in the top seven in yards allowed per game and two of the top nine in points allowed per game. Both teams are two of the bottom five in offenses and pace of play. Lions running back David Montgomery has yet to practice this week and appears unlikely to go in Week 7 after suffering a nasty rib injury in Week 6. The Ravens are relatively healthy, if you discount J.K. Dobbins' season-ending injury from earlier in the year, with just linebacker Odafe Owe and safety Marcus Williams not practicing this week, as of Thursday. The Lions have shown a propensity to alter their offensive game plan and game management relative to what the opponent gives them, while the Ravens had remained stagnant in their offensive approach, really not altering a thing unless the opponent forces them to do so. These are two very different approaches in digging beyond the top-level stats. How Detroit Will Try to Win The Lions are now able to run the offense they have wanted to run for some time under head coach Dan Campbell, which starts with their defense. Their slow pace of play, 30th ranked 30.3 seconds per play, combined with a run-balanced approach and a defense that is now a legitimate top-five unit, has allowed them to grind out games when required. That said, they are coming off a Week 6 win over the Pass Funnel Buccaneers, where they proved they can win through the air when required as well, a game that marked their highest pass rate over expectation value of the season on the backs of 44 pass attempts and just 22 team rush attempts. The Ravens pulled into first in net yards allowed per pass attempt after the Browns took on the 49ers this week, holding opponents to just 4.0 yards per pass attempt this season. Strangely enough, they now present more of a run-funnel matchup than in previous seasons. David Montgomery's likely absence this week dents the potential plan of attack a smidge, but we should expect the Lions to primarily take what their opposition gives them. Furthering that notion are the above-average man coverage rates from the Ravens, against which Josh Reynolds is actually the leading pass catcher for the Lions with an 87.5 receiving grade per PFF and .67 fantasy points per route run against man, also per PFF. It's difficult to say what to expect from a likeliest scenario from the Lions run game here. Considering David Montgomery is likely to miss Week 7, Jameer Gibbs has yet to be trusted with a full workload and is coming off injury, limited in both sessions this week so far as well, and Craig Reynolds is coming off injury, also limited in both sessions this week so far. Best guess here is a backfield tandem split between Reynolds and Gibbs, likely closely mirroring the team's Week 3 split in snap rates at 60-30. to 30. The volume expectation is more fragile for this backfield as a whole than we would otherwise expect from a run-balanced offense, considering their tendency to attack an opposition's deficiencies, paired with the fact that both Reynolds and Gibbs are largely unproven at the NFL level. Finally, the Ravens have allowed just one rushing score all season and have held opposing backfields to 4.0 yards per carry on the ground. The pass offense is rounding into form after the return of Jamison Williams and the breakout of rookie tight end Sam Laporta. Amon Ross St. Brown, Josh Reynolds, and Laporta should be the only near-every-down pass catchers on a weekly basis, with Khalif Raymond, Marvin Jones Jr., lol, and Williams sharing the remaining snaps as things currently stand. We expect Williams to eventually take over a more robust downfield role, but it remains to be seen if or when that will occur. As mentioned above, none of these players have been truly elite against man coverage this season, with Reynolds leading the way on a per-route basis. Even so, the Ravens are still in zone coverage on 68% of their defensive snaps, meaning the elite traits of St. Brown and Laporta against zone coverage can still translate to success in this spot. 
Nothing here leaps off the page, but the talent of some of these pieces can always win out in a difficult spot like this. How Baltimore will try to win. The Ravens operate another slow offense, 28th ranked 29.4 seconds per play, albeit with increasing aerial aggression after the injury issues they have dealt with at running back already this season. They have continued to utilize some of the highest 21 personnel rates in the league through fullback Patrick Richard, leaving only rookie wide receiver Zay Flowers and tight end Mark Andrews as every down pass catchers. They have primarily leveraged their defense on the way to a 4-2 record, ranking 4th in opponents' points per game, but just 15th in points scored per game at 22.2. In other words, it's very unlikely that this offense goes out of its way to push for 4 touchdowns or more on a standard week, and their defense has made it so they haven't needed to push that envelope through 6 weeks. The Ravens, in stark contrast to the Lions, also haven't really showed the propensity to open up their offense for the matchup, instead relying on game environment to dictate their aerial aggression. They attempted just 30 passes against the Titans in Week 6, 19 against the Browns in Week 4, 31 in overtime against the Colts in Week 3, 33 against the Bengals in Week 2, and 22 against the Texans in Week 1. In other words, the only time this offense has attempted more than 33 passes in a game this season was a Week 5 loss to the Steelers in Pittsburgh, where they couldn't score after the beginning of the second quarter. The backfield remains a 1-2 punch amongst Gus Edwards and Justice Hill. With the added caveats that Richard is likely to play 30-45% to 45% of the offensive snaps, depending on the game environment, and that quarterback Lamar Jackson is typically responsible for 10-12 to 12 carries of his own, Edwards is the back likeliest to see increased snaps and utilization in games the Ravens control, while Hill is the back likeliest to lead the backfield in snaps and opportunities in tighter games or when the Ravens play from behind. Even with the run-balanced approach on offense, carries are typically split amongst both backs and Lamar Jackson, leaving very little room for individual upside to develop in a standard game environment. The matchup on paper is less than ideal against a defense holding opponents to just 3.3 yards per carry, even while allowing 1.45 yards before contact per carry. The pass offense in Baltimore is concentrated amongst its primary two players, and then wide open behind those two. As was mentioned above, Zay Flowers and Mark Andrews are the only two pass catchers to see near every down usage, with Nelson Aguilar, Rashad Bateman, Odell Beckham Jr., Devin Duvernay, and Isaiah Likely all operating as rotational and situational pieces in this offense. And even then, Flowers holds a modest 23.8% targets per route run rate and 8.4 ADOT on 100% route participation. The low expected weekly pass volume has held him to no true blow-up games, even while ranking 12th in the league in receptions with 35 through 6 weeks. Mark Andrews is in the same boat, in a route on 100% of the team's pass plays with 24 receptions through 5 games played, but a low 20.9% targets per route run rate and an 8.1 ADOT. As such, both players should continue to derive most of their value from their ability to find the end zone or through a game environment erupting, an opponent forcing the Rams to pass more. That makes them fairly easy to break down from a fantasy standpoint. If playing Andrews or Flowers, it must be with Lamar Jackson, and strong consideration should also be placed on a game stack on those rosters. Likeliest Game Flow Because the Ravens are set in their offensive ways, it will be up to the Lions to push this game environment in Week 7, as it should be for the remainder of the year for any game involving the Ravens. And while the Lions are more adaptable offense of the two, we have an extremely small sample size of the offense in its current state, and an even smaller sample size of the offense against man coverage. That keeps the likeliest scenario outcome from this game environment in the realm of interconference slugfest between two teams that don't see each other all too often, albeit with the caveat that there are enough unknowns between these two franchises that an unforeseen shootout has the chance of developing. For my MME crew, that sounds like a solid bet to make at low ownership on a portion, maybe a small portion, of rosters in play this week. 
Aiding in that discussion is the relatively straightforward way of playing each of these offenses in their respective current states, making it easy to get overweight the field on a situation that could develop into a difference maker, even if those chances are relatively low. On paper, and for my single entry in 3-max squad, there isn't a ton that jumps off the page from this spot. Raiders at Bears. Kickoff Sunday, October 22nd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 38. Game Overview by Hilo. Jimmy Garoppolo missed practice Wednesday with a back injury suffered in Week 6 and appears likely to miss against the Bears. Rookie fifth-round quarterback Aiden O'Connell drew the start in the only other game Garoppolo missed this season and appears the likely starter against the Bears. Raiders cornerback Nate Hobbs continues to miss practice and appears unlikely to go again in Week 7. Justin Fields suffered a thumb injury on his throwing hand that precludes him from firmly gripping the football. I would expect him to miss Week 7. That leaves undrafted rookie quarterback Tyson Badgett in line to start for the Bears. Roshan Johnson did not practice Wednesday in the first session of the second week post-concussion. Not a good sign. With Khalil Herbert on injured reserve and Travis Homer returning to a limited session, there are still a lot of moving pieces with the Chicago backfield. How Las Vegas will try to win. The Raiders have played with a slow pace. 26th ranked, 29.3 seconds per play, and modest pass rates. 17th ranked pass rate over expectation, and 32.7 pass attempts per game, most notably playing with the third highest rush rates over expectation in week 6, in a contest they controlled throughout against the Patriots, taking a 13-3 lead into the half. That's an important consideration here given the opponent, as the Bears should be starting undrafted rookie quarterback Tyson Badgett and should continue with injury concerns amongst the members of their backfield. Consider the Raiders a run-balanced offense in week 7, likely to start fifth-round rookie quarterback Aiden O'Connell, after Jimmy Garoppolo suffered a back injury in Week 6. In other words, even though the matchup against the Bears clearly tilts expected volume to the air, 5th in yards allowed per carry and 17th in DVOA against the run, but 31st in net yards allowed per pass and 30th in DVOA against the pass, we should expect Josh McDaniels to call a run-balanced game through muted efficiency. Josh Jacobs maintains his status as one of the few true remaining workhorse backs in the league, but has struggled mightily to start the season. His 2.9 true yards per carry ranks 63rd. His 3.9 yards per touch ranks 38th. He has just two breakaway runs on 107 carries, 1.9% breakaway run rate, and his 15.9% juke rate ranks 37th. Even so, his robust role in this offense and elite pass game usage, his 35 targets are the most in the league at running back, have led to the second most expected fantasy points per game at 19.9 a full 5 points per game higher than his current average of 14.9. The matchup on the ground is not ideal against a Bears team seeding just 1.10 yards before contact per rush, which surprisingly ranks second in the league through six weeks. But again, the volume should be there for Jacobs in this spot. Amir Abdullah should continue to serve as the primary change of pace back for an offense that has utilized 21 personnel at an above-average rate, albeit most of which comes through fullback Jacob Johnson's ebb-and-flow role. The Raiders' pass offense is an interesting study. The team started the season feeding most of the volume through Devontae Adams and Jacoby Myers, but has since made a concerted effort to get rookie tight end Michael Mayer more heavily involved in the early game. Hunter Renfro has fallen from grace and managed a season-low 10% snap rate in Week 6. Reports have surfaced that the team is looking to move the veteran slot man. And then we have the disgruntled Adams, who told reporters this week that his benchmark is not wins and losses, it's greatness. Adams was outspoken this week about his low 20% first read target rate over the previous two games, a span where he has seen just nine combined targets. 
A lot of that is most likely attributable to his opponents in those games actively scheming additional coverage to Adams, as his former team, the Packers, and Bill Belichick effectively removed him from those games. That's an interesting setup, because the Bears have nobody on the roster that can contend with Adams, nor have they actively utilized an island scheme designed to remove an opposing player from any game this season. Add all that up, and we have an unquestioned first ballot Hall of Fame wide receiver who has been outspoken about his role in the offense in a cake matchup through the air. The biggest problem is that Josh McDaniels has been stubborn in his offensive approach this season, but that could change in a flash if he attempts to quell the concerns of his alpha wide receiver. How Chicago will try to win There are so many moving pieces with the Chicago team that we can't say with a high degree of certainty how they approach this spot. Their backfield is an injury-riddled disaster, they are likely to be starting an undrafted free agent rookie quarterback, and their defense couldn't guard a beached whale through the air. It is likely we will see Luke Getze and Matt Eberflus adopt a more conservative offensive approach and overall game plan here in what is quickly shaping up as a lost season for the Bears. In the team's Week 6 loss to the Vikings, a game that stayed close throughout, the Bears attempted 36 rushes to just 24 passes, providing a sneak peek into what to expect this week for as long as the game remains within reach. Final note. Bajant threw one interception and took four sacks in what amounted to two quarters worth of play in Week 6, and if the Bears don't give additional attention to Max Crosby, it could be a long afternoon for the rookie. The backfield remains an unbridled amalgamation of injury and inefficient play. Rookie Roshan Johnson would be the likeliest player to see a borderline workhorse role, but he has yet to clear the league's concussion protocol after 10 days, sitting out practice on Wednesday. Scatback Travis Homer is unlikely to handle a robust role between the tackles. Homer returned to a limited session on Wednesday. Donta Foreman and Darrington Evans are the only other backs currently on the roster. The likely absence of Justin Fields also fundamentally alters the team's rushing upside and game plan. It's a mess, to put it lightly. It could develop into a more projectable situation, should Johnson clear concussion protocol, but that remains to be seen. The Raiders have allowed 1.35 yards before contact per rush and have seeded 4.3 yards per carry this season, so the matchup is non-prohibitive on paper. The aerial game remains heavily focused on two players, DJ Moore and Cole Komet, slightly boosting those expectations in a matchup with a Raiders team generating pressure at the fourth lowest rate in the league, 17.4%, and the fact that Bajent will have a full week to prepare for his first NFL start, as opposed to being thrust into action as a backup last week. Justin Fields held a near NFL average 7.6 intended air yards per pass attempt through the first six weeks but we have to think Getze simplifies the offensive game plan as much as possible for his undrafted rookie quarterback. That should translate to more short area designed work for more and quick hits to commit over the middle of the field when they do pass, but the macro perspective is that we shouldn't expect robust volume through the air. The offense has transitioned to heavier rates of 12 personnel as the season has progressed, with Darnell Mooney held around 80% of the offensive snaps on a weekly basis and rookie wide receiver Tyler Scott stepping into a larger share of the offensive snaps. Tight ends Robert Tanyan and Mercedes Lewis split 50-60% 12 personnel snaps almost down the middle. In earnest, this pass offense runs primarily through Moore and Komet. Likeliest Game Flow On paper, this matchup appears unassuming and trepidatious. That said, Devontae Adams gains particular intrigue on a slate where 30-plus DK point outings are likely to be hard to come by, considering his outwardly expressive uneasiness with his current role in the offense. Is that certain to lead to a 15-plus target outing with a backup quarterback? No. Is that well within his range of outcomes in this spot? 100%.
Either way, it is understandable that this game comes with a low game total, considering we are likely to get a matchup between two rookie quarterbacks, one of whom was an undrafted free agent. The matchup for the Raiders combines with their previous offensive tendencies to tell a tale of a team fully content to try and grind out a win in a spot like this, but we can't minimize the chances that Josh McDaniels goes out of his way to feature a beleaguered alpha wide receiver. This isn't a spot to look to game stack due to the relatively low chances of the game environment erupting, but it could be a spot to hunt for individual upside due to the highly concentrated nature of each offense. A final note here, Josh Jacobs saw a whopping 11 targets in Aiden O'Connell's only other start this season. Browns at Colts, kickoff Sunday, October 22nd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 40 and a half. Game Overview, by Hilo. Deshaun Watson did not practice Wednesday after missing the previous three weeks with a shoulder injury, including two games and the team's bye week in week five. Kareem Hunt, thigh injury, did not practice Wednesday after forcing his way into 12 carries and three targets in week six. All-world guard Joel Betonio returned to a limited practice Wednesday. Finally, tight end Harrison Bryant did not practice for the Browns Wednesday with a hip injury. Wide receiver Alec Pierce did not practice Wednesday for the Colts due to a shoulder injury. Tight end Kyle Granson was held out of Wednesday with a concussion, not a good sign for the first practice of the second week post-concussion. The Cleveland defense should assert control over this game environment throughout, likely leading to a run-balanced approach on offense and a muted overall game environment. How Cleveland will try to win The Browns are coming off a game where they held the 49ers to under 30 points for just the third time since week 13 of the 22 season, the week Brock Purdy took over as the starting quarterback. In fact, the 17 points scored by the 49ers in Week 6 were the second fewest during that span, more than just the 7 they scored in the conference championship game last year against the Eagles. Oh yeah, and they handed San Francisco their first loss of the season, with P.J. Walker at quarterback. It is fair to say the identity of this team begins with its defense, a unit holding opponents to just 15.4 points per game, ranked 5th, 3.5 yards per carry, ranked 4th, 4.1 net yards per pass attempt, ranked second, and just 200.4 yards per game, first by a metric mile. Quarterback Deshaun Watson missed his second consecutive game in Week 6, when combined with the team's bye week, marked the third consecutive week he was out with a shoulder injury. Fifth-round rookie quarterback Dorian Thompson-Robinson started the first game in his absence, a 28-3 loss to the Ravens, where he turned the ball over three times, took four sacks, and had an additional fumble that was recovered by the team. Practice squad quarterback P.J. Walker started the second missed game by Watson, last week's 19-17 win over the then-undefeated 49ers. He was immediately returned to the practice squad after the win, but has two more call-ups remaining, meaning he very well could start again this week, even though he is not currently on the active roster. Overall, the Browns play with modest pace, 23rd ranked 29.2 seconds per play, and low pass rates, 23rd ranked pass rate over expectation, and 14th ranked 34.4 pass attempts per game. 35 pass attempts per game in Watson's two absences. The Colts present a relatively neutral matchup, both on the ground and through the air, meaning the Browns should not be discouraged from running the offense they otherwise would like to here, which includes a run-balanced attack. Cleveland has run their offense primarily from 11 personnel this season, which has held the lead back to between 50% and 65% of the offensive snaps in most weeks. Since Nick Chubb's season-ending knee injury in Week 2, that lead back has been Jerome Ford. Ford has averaged 15.67 running back opportunities per game during that time, including 11 targets over three games. Week 6 also marked the first game without Chubb, where the backfield operated in a 1-2 tandem as opposed to the three-headed timeshare it had been the previous two games, which left Pierre strong with just one offensive snap. 
That should keep Ford in the 50 to 65% snap rate range with a better than zero chance at 18 to 20 running back opportunities. The Colts have held opponents to 1.22 yards before contact, and the Browns have underperformed in most run blocking metrics to this point in the season. 1.09 yards before contact, but solid 4.5 yards per carry. As mentioned above, the Browns have run their offense primarily through 11 personnel with about league average 12 personnel rates. That has left Amari Cooper, Elijah Moore, and Donovan Peoples-Jones with 80-90% to snap rates in a standard week, and tight end David Njoku not far behind in the 70-85% to snap rate range. Gus Bradley's prevent defense has blitzed at the lowest rate in the league and has played cover three at the highest rate in the league this season, typically coming from a nickel base. In typical cover three fashion, the Colts seed a high completion rate, 67.91%, on a moderate defensive ADOT, 7.8 which should tilt the majority of the pass volume towards Cooper, Moore, and Joku, and the running backs. Considering Peoples-Jones has just one reception on five targets over the previous two games with Watson, it's safe to say we can safely avoid him in our player pools this week. Either way, expect the Browns to be forced to march the field while stringing together drives, primarily focused around the running backs and short to intermediate area passing to the flat against Bradley's cover three heavy defense. How Indianapolis will try to win the Gardner Minshew era continues in Indianapolis, with rookie quarterback Anthony Richardson electing season-ending surgery on his injured throwing shoulder, giving us just a slight taste of his tantalizing upside this season. He started just four of six games and finished only one of those, but handily led the league in fantasy points per four quarters and fantasy points per snap at quarterback when on the field. Minshew attempted a massive 99 passes in his two starts this season against Baltimore and Jacksonville, both of which came against defenses that cracked down on the run and forced teams to the air. That's a similar situation to where this team finds itself in Week 7 against a suffocating man-heavy defensive scheme that has held opponents to just 200.4 yards per game of offense this season. That should leave the Colts with an offensive game plan that starts run-balanced, but quickly shifts to a pass-heavy approach, considering head coach Shane Steichen's previous tendencies. Adding to the relative uncertainty from this offense, in addition to Minshew's presence as the starter, are injuries to downfield wide receiver Alec Pierce, right tackle Braden Smith, and tight end Kyle Granson, all of whom did not practice on Wednesday. Jonathan Taylor worked his way into a near-even timeshare with Zach Moss in his second game action of the season in Week 6 after Moss had operated as the unquestioned workhorse back for the previous four games. Assuming Steichen makes good on his promise to slowly transition Taylor to the workhorse back over the four-week time frame, we should loosely project for Taylor to see his first game as the lead back in Week 7. That should still involve Moss, who has proven to be effective and efficient when on the field for the Colts this season, likely leaving both backs in the 14-16 running back opportunity range in a difficult matchup. Both backs saw exactly 14 opportunities a week ago. Considering the matchup and likely split in work, neither jumps off the page as a strong on-paper play. Wide receiver Alec Pierce has operated as a near-every-down pass catcher when healthy. It was Amari Rogers who stepped into the vacated snaps when Pierce left Week 6 with injury, and he served in a similar role to the one left behind by Pierce, working downfield as the prototypical Z-type wide receiver. I would loosely expect rookie Josh Downs to see a slight uptick in the snap rate for an offense that primarily operated from 11 personnel should Pierce miss. That would leave Michael Pittman and Josh Downs as the only near-every-down pass catchers in this offense, each of whom works primarily the short-to-intermediate areas of the field, 8.4 ADOT for Pittman, 6.4 ADOT for Downs. Both Pittman and Downs hold an above-average 25% targets per route run rate against man coverage this season, but have each struggled to 0.35 fantasy points per route run against that primary coverage. 
Quite simply, there isn't a ton to love from any Indianapolis pass catcher here. Likeliest game flow. With the Cleveland defense likely to assert control over this game throughout, and with Gus Bradley's defense likely to force the Browns to march the field throughout, a lot of the upside is quickly sapped from this game environment. Gardner Minshew's below average 60.6% completion rate, 60 for 99, on the backdrop of 21 points per game in his two starts against Baltimore and Jacksonville, combined with the suffocating man-heavy and blitz-heavy defense from the Cleveland Browns, leaves the Colts with an offensive game plan that should start run-balanced, but quickly turn pass-heavy, which should serve to boost the overall volume for the Browns to levels higher than NFL average, which should make sense considering the Browns average the second-most plays per game at 71. All said, there aren't any pass catchers that jump off the page from a likeliest scenario standpoint, but there should be some intrigue with the Cleveland backfield at a depressed salary and likely low ownership. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Bills at Patriots. Kickoff Sunday, October 22nd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 40. Game Overview by Hilo. Bills running back Damian Harris is unlikely to play this week with a neck injury and a concussion after a scary incident in Week 6 that required an ambulance to escort him from the field of play. Patriots tight end Hunter Henry has not practiced this week as of Thursday with an ankle injury suffered in Week 6. In standard Bill Belichick fashion, the Patriots list 17 players as limited as of Thursday, with five additional players DNP on both days and Ramondre Stevenson removed from the injury report after a limited session Wednesday. The emphasis on 12 personnel with rookie tight end Dalton Kincaid hasn't forced opponents into base and away from nickel at the rates the Bills would have expected to this point, making the mismatch over the middle of the field more muted than we would otherwise expect to see from a player like Kincaid. The Patriots are broken. Broken on offense. 12 points per game through six weeks is hashtag not good. How Buffalo will try to win. Pull up the most recent game log from the Bills and you'll see a video excerpt from Pat McAfee titled McAfee Confused by Bills Offensive Struggles. That seems to be the consensus around the media. Why are the Bills struggling? Maybe it's because their three nationally televised games were an opening weekend loss to the Jets in overtime, a loss to the Jaguars in London, and a 14-9 win over the hapless Giants on Sunday Night Football. Look. The Bills are third in the league in scoring at 28.8 points per game and won their other three games by an average margin of 30 points against Las Vegas, Washington, and Miami. We've played six weeks. Teams are still figuring out their end state. The Buffalo Bills are fine and will be fine. They're just finding their way amidst the multitude of changes that a team goes through from year to year, just as every other team is right now. Oh yeah, and they also rank third in points allowed per game at just 14.8. Now there are some legitimate changes going on with this offense primarily centered around Josh Allen and the team's attempts to prolong the career of one of the most physical quarterbacks in the league to this point in his career. Allen regularly hit double-digit carries earlier in his career and has a season high of just 6 in 23, which came in Week 1. All is fine, just slightly different, in Buffalo, fam. The other major media talking point revolving around the Bills team is the increased utilization from veritable dinosaur Latavius Murray, or at least that's what the industry would have you believe. The truth of the matter is that the veteran back has been the most efficient back on the roster. So yeah, feed the man his touches. Murray has created 10% more yards per touch than backfield mate James Cook, a metric designed to remove the effectiveness of the offensive line. At 6'2", 223 pounds, he's also better equipped to handle the gritty work in the red zone as compared to the 5'11", 199-pound James Cook. 
Furthermore, his seven targets on 111 offensive snaps, 6.3%, are not far off from the targets per snap rate of Cook, who has seen 18 targets on 219 snaps, good for 8.2%. Whether or not the dead-even split in snaps from Week 6 carries forward or the backfield reverts back to a 65-35 split in the absence of Damian Harris remains to be seen. But Murray has almost certainly earned an increase in involvement. Harris appears set to miss this week, at minimum, after suffering what is being called a neck injury and concussion in a scary incident in Week 6. Stefan Diggs is beyond the alpha he has been previously in his career in 23, setting career highs in target market share, 33.8%, and targets per game, 11, through the first third of the season. His ADOT remains a non-elite 10.7, but his returns have been stellar with 3 of 6 games of 28.1 or more DK points and 22.1 or more DK points in 5 of 6 games. Enter a matchup with a Belichickian defense that aims to actively scheme against an opposition's top option. Even so, there aren't many players on this slate that can put up 30-plus DK points, making Diggs completely worth consideration in a perceived difficult spot. That notion is furthered due to the continued injury concerns with the New England secondary. Jonathan Jones has yet to practice this week, while Jack Jones, Jabril Peppers, and Cody Davis have been limited both days of practice. The standard counter, for DFS purposes, for the Belichick defense has historically been to play the secondary option through the air against them, which thrusts Gabe Davis up the potential ladder after his streak of four consecutive games with a touchdown was broken in Week 6. He's not going to be some volume magnet in this offense, but his big playability and knack for the end zone keep him in consideration on a weekly basis. Finally, both Dawson Knox and Dalton Kincaid have been full participants in practice this week, which should shift the offense back to a 12-personnel base. The biggest problem with that has been its influence on opposing defenses has been less than optimal, as it hasn't forced opponents into base and away from nickel at the rates the Bills would have expected to this point, making the mismatch over the middle of the field more muted than we would otherwise expect to see from a player like Kincaid. That should also keep Trent Sherfield, Khalil Shakir, and Deontay Hardy in the sub-30% snap rate range. How New England will try to win The Patriots have been bitten hard by the injury bug on the defensive side of the ball primarily in the secondary, and have an offensive line performing as a bottom-five unit almost across the board. Those two aspects of their team have truly hampered their ability to stay competitive this season. Their offensive line ranks 30th in pressure rate allowed and has blocked to a below-average 1.33 yards before contact in the run game, while their defense has blitzed at a 43% clip, generated pressure just 21% of the time, and allowed 5.9 net yards per pass attempt, ranked 17th. The strength of their team has been their defensive line against the run, on the back of nose tackle Briston Barmore, which has allowed them to play primarily from nickel base from cover 2 and cover 3 alignments, albeit never afraid to man up from cover 1 and quarters press. Their 29% man coverage rate ranks 9th in the league. But that emphasis on nickel has left them largely unable to generate consistent pressure, which has exposed their secondary in man and left too much time for routes to develop when in zone. The Patriots somewhat surprisingly lead the league in overall pace of play at 25.9 seconds per play, but maintain a run-balanced approach with the league's fifth-highest rush rate over expectation. Ramondre Stevenson ranks 12th in snap rate, 66%, but just 23rd in opportunity share, 61.1%, and has struggled to just 3 true yards per carry, ranked 61st, and 3.6 yards per touch, ranked 46th. The Bills' primary weakness on defense is against the run, having allowed 5.4 yards per carry this season. Even so, they are best in the league in yards allowed before contact at just .97, but have missed a whopping 46 tackles through six games, good for sixth most in the league. Those inefficiencies are relatively masked in this spot considering New England's own inefficiencies in the run game to this point in the season. 
as in it's not likely that the top-level yards per carry allowed by the Bills through six weeks translates to an elevated yards per tote for Stevenson here. Ezekiel Elliott should continue in a strict change of pace role, but showed life and burst for the first time in over two seasons last week, albeit with it coming on a 74-yard receiving score that was called back due to penalty. Not a ton to love in this spot from the New England run game. While the run game is straightforward yet inefficient, the pass game has significant layers of uncertainty due to injury and inconsistent play from pass catchers and Mac Jones alike. The offense operates primarily from 11 and 12 personnel, with rates split typically dependent on the game environment the team finds itself in. But the injury to tight end Hunter Henry could throw those tendencies for a loop as Mike Gusecki is a below-average blocker and below-average in pass protection. Kendrick Bourne and Devontae Parker are the pass catchers likeliest to see a full complement of snaps, but even their individual snap rates have fluctuated wildly this season. Tyquan Thornton and Jalen Rager were tasked with their first meaningful snap rates in Week 6 after Juju Smith-Schuster, Demario Douglas, and Kayshawn Booty all missed the contest, leaving a wide range of outcomes as far as snap rate expectations go, depending on who makes it back this week. I loosely expect Mike Gusecki to remain in the standard for him 40-60% to 60% snap rate range should Henry miss, which could vault Farrell Brown's snap rate into the meaningful range. Either way, the matchup is brutal. Mac Jones has struggled in his own right and should be under relentless pressure throughout, and the injury concerns leave this pass offense starved of upside. Likeliest Game Flow It is likeliest we see the Bills' defense assert their will on the Patriots' offense from the jump, which should allow the Bills to treat this game as another find-yourself matchup where they are able to explore different avenues of exploitation on offense. That should include the same elevated rates of 12 personnel that we have become accustomed to over the first third of the season, which could thrust Gabe Davis and Dalton Kincaid into heavier usage, considering the matchup against a Belichick defense that aims to mute the production of an opponent's top option. In all honesty, Diggs' usage and emphasis in the offense are not likely to be fully muted, considering he has managed to hit 100 receiving yards in five of six games this season, but it is worth considering as one of the outlets to failure for the top option on one of the teams with the highest Vegas implied team total this week. That discussion gains increased emphasis after this defense held Devontae Adams to just two receptions on five targets in week six. That should force the Patriots into increased aerial aggression as the game moves on, which presents more opportunities for the Bills' defense to tee off on an offensive line that ranks 30th in pressure rate allowed. Things look bleak for the Patriots in this one. Commanders at Giants. Kickoff Sunday, October 22nd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 37 and a half. Game Overview by Hilo. New York's offensive line has been decimated by injuries and now will be without Shane Lemieux, who tore his bicep in Wednesday's practice. Four other offensive linemen did no practice Wednesday. Evan Neal, Matt Pert, John Schmitz, and Andrew Thomas. QB Daniel Jones and running back Saquon Barkley both managed limited sessions Wednesday, most notably placing Daniel Jones in line to potentially make his return from a one-game absence. That said, Jones was second in line in team throwing drills on both Wednesday and Thursday behind Tyrod Taylor, and he has yet to be cleared for contact. First-round rookie cornerback Emmanuel Forbes was benched in Week 6, but could find himself back in the starting lineup for the Commanders after Kendall Fuller missed practice Wednesday with a knee injury. How Washington Will Try to Win Washington's 28.9 seconds per play ranks 20th in the league, while their offensive game plans have more or less been fluid from game to game. On the top level, their third-ranked pass rate over expectation hints at a game plan that involves airing it out from the beginning of the game. But this offense is honestly more prone to taking their play calling to the extremes based on the early game environment they find themselves in, as opposed to simply coming out firing through the air from the jump. 
and inability to consistently sustain drives has led to the Commanders averaging just 62 offensive plays per game, leaving their pass volume, rush volume, and overall play volume highly dependent on game environment as opposed to them forcing the issue on offense themselves. Offensive line struggles have also contributed heavily to the wide range of outcomes we've seen from this team. They have been all over the map and highly inconsistent overall, narrowly beating the Cardinals in Week 1, erupting against the poor defense of the Broncos in Week 2, getting laughed off the field in a 37-3 loss to the Bills in Week 3, playing a good Eagles team to an overtime loss in Week 4, getting laughed off the field by the Bears of all teams in Week 5, and taking down a gritty Falcons team in Week 6. We've seen it all with this team through six weeks. Since this team has primarily played to their opponent to start the season, I would expect a more muted game plan against the reeling Giants that is likely to start with a balanced plan that morphs to the game environment as the game progresses. Helping that likely design is a Giants defense allowing 1.76 yards before contact per carry this season, second worst in the league behind only the Chargers. Furthermore, the typically low red zone touch rates surrendered by Wink Martindale's defense have ballooned to almost 62% through six weeks of the 23 season. I don't see anything to classify that shift outside of variance. As in, there's nothing I see from a situational play calling perspective that would explain the increase in red zone touchdown rate allowed. Either way, the Commanders have been one of the most lethal offenses in the red zone with a touchdown rate to match the 62% allowed by the Giants, which should serve to allow the Commanders to remain run-balanced for deeper into the game. Similar to the overall tendencies exhibited by this offense through six weeks, the backfield split has been largely up to the game environment the Commanders find themselves in. And that's particularly speaking to the distribution of opportunities and less to the actual snap rate share between leadback Brian Robinson and change of paceback Antonio Gibson, as each is playing fairly consistent snap rates. In games the Commanders are allowed to control on the ground, Brian Robinson has four of his five touchdowns, Cardinals, Broncos, and Falcons, while he has just one touchdown against the Bills, Eagles, and Bears. Even while sharing the backfield with Robinson, Gibson has just 16 carries and 13 receptions through six games played, or just under five opportunities per game. He should remain off our radar for the time being. The pass offense has quite honestly been maddening to this point in the season behind an offensive line allowing the fourth highest pressure rate in the league, behind just the Seahawks, Giants, and Patriots. Even through the ineffective play from the offensive line, Sam Howell has not been terrible in his first true stint as the starting quarterback in this offense. His 7.8 intended air yards per attempt ranks 15th in the league, while attempting the 5th most passes with the 8th most air yards. Turnovers have been the primary concern with Howell, having thrown more interceptable passes, 11, than touchdowns, 9, while also losing a fumble. When Howell is able to diagnose a defense and get rid of the football, he has been an above-average quarterback, even when pressured. 4th best completion rate when under pressure, 11th best accuracy rating when under pressure. That's important against the Giants because of Wink Martindale's elevated blitz rates and due to the sheer number of sacks Howell has taken this season. In other words, we could see a wide range of outcomes resulting from the elevated blitz rates from Martindale here. Either they get home and start disrupting drives against a sack-prone quarterback, or Howell is able to get the ball out with a high degree of accuracy and chew up the second level from the Giants, and everything in between. The Commanders have run primarily from 11 and 12 personnel dependent on game flow this season, with Terry McLaurin, Jahan Dotson, and Logan Thomas the near-every-down pass catchers, and Curtis Samuel the slot man that also sees schemed usage. The Giants have been in man coverage at the fifth-highest rate in the league this season, against which the leading receiver for the Commanders is actually Curtis Samuel, lols, with 4.9 fantasy points per route run and a 70.9 receiving grade against man coverage this season, both of which lead the team. 
From a micro matchup perspective, McLaurin could return an elite fantasy score against Deontay Banks and Trey Hawkins after seeing double-digit targets twice in the previous three games, assuming Adoree Jackson misses with a neck injury. Jackson got in a limited session Wednesday but could miss Week 7 due to the nature of his injury. How New York will try to win The Giants finally gave us some semblance of predictability with how they want to run their offense moving forward in Week 6. Saquon Barkley returned from an extended absence due to an ankle injury to a 78% snap rate after getting as high as 97% in Week 2 prior to the injury. Darius Slayton operated in a tick-below-every-down role as an 87% snap rate in that game. Wondell Robinson and Darren Waller have maintained consistent roles, with Robinson the slot-wide receiver who sees short-area schemed usage, and Waller the every-down tight end who also holds a 100% route participation rate. Rookie wide receiver Jalen Hyatt saw a career-high 73% snap rate and was in on a route on over 80% of the team's pass plays. But what really jumped out was the lack of participation from players behind that core, as Paris Campbell didn't see the field and Sterling Shepard played just one offensive snap, condensing this offense into something more consistent and projectable. Finally, Isaiah Hodgins saw just 18 offensive snaps, good for a small 23% snap rate. That's important information considering a modestly-paced offense, 17th ranked 28.6 seconds per play, that carries a run-balanced approach, 8th highest rush rate over expectation, a solid 65.5 offensive plays per game, and a middling 33.7 pass attempts per game. Beyond that, one thing has remained consistent for the Giants. Their offensive line has been putrid this season. Shane Lemieux tore his bicep in practice Wednesday, while four other linemen did not practice, Evan Neal, Matt Pert, John Schmitz, and Andrew Thomas. This comes a week after Justin Pugh was signed off his couch to play meaningful snaps for the Giants. Not good, Bob. Saquon Barkley is one of the true workhorse running backs remaining in the league when healthy. He returned from a lengthy absence to play 60 offensive snaps in his first game back, indicating an eventual return to true workhorse status is likely on the horizon. But for how good the expected workload has been for Barkley, the offensive line has been equally bad, if not worse, in the other direction. New York's offensive line has blocked to 1.33 yards before contact, while the Commanders surrender 1.49 yards before contact, fourth worst in the league. So the matchup isn't all doom and gloom. Even so, Barkley will likely be charged with generating much of his own space considering the injuries to the offensive line. Matt Breida should continue to serve as the primary change of pace option behind Barkley. As we covered above, the pass offense finally has some degree of concentration and certainty, assuming, a big if to be honest, what we saw in week 6 carries forward for this team. Based on previous tendencies and head coach Brian Dable's history, I tentatively expect those trends to remain consistent as the year progresses. That should leave Darren Waller, Saquon Barkley, Darius Slayton, Jalen Hyatt, and Wandale Robinson as the primary contributors through the air on a weekly basis, but not necessarily in that order. Tyrod Taylor honestly gives this offense the best chance of working beyond five yards downfield, dropping numerous passes in the breadbasket in his spot start in week six. Even so, his 6.4 intended air yards per pass attempt this season barely surpasses the 6.3 of Daniel Jones, but the former's 50% deep ball completion percentage dwarfs the 18.2 deep ball completion percentage of Jones this season. The low intended air yards per pass attempt values from both quarterbacks are more likely an indicator of the struggles of the offensive line than it is a nod to the quarterbacks themselves. That is unlikely to improve drastically against the swarming defensive front of the commanders, although Washington has been absolutely gashed by perimeter receivers this season. A good chunk of that damage has come when directed towards 2023 first-round cornerback Emmanuel Forbes, who was benched in Week 6. 
Forbes could be called on again in Week 7, considering Kendall Fuller did not practice to start the week with a knee injury. If Fuller is out and Forbes is thrust back into the starting lineup, we could see some fireworks deep from the speed of Slayton and Hyatt. Likeliest Game Flow As you probably got the sense of while reading through that, this game carries a fairly wide range of outcomes that is almost entirely up to the Giants to decide on offense. The Commanders are simply content playing whatever game is brought to them as far as aggression goes, meaning they will very infrequently be the driving force behind game environments this season, at least for now, or until something changes. So does Dable come out firing, attempting to save his season after a gross loss on national television, where a miscommunication with his veteran backup quarterback cost them the game, or does he try to ride Saquon on his way to a divisional slugfest? No idea, but either is certainly on the table here. There are pieces of each offense that can succeed should these teams square up for a shootout, primarily being Terry McLaurin, Darius Slayton, Jalen Hyatt, and Brian Robinson, likely in that order for my personal interest in pieces from this game. All four of those players have clear-ish paths to 25-plus DK points on a slate where those scores could be hard to come by. The Falcons at the Buccaneers kick off Sunday, October 22nd at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 37. Game Overview by Pappy This is a weak game environment for DFS. The small total has been bet down early in the week. This game has a lot of real-life importance. The Buccaneers should come out throwing, but that doesn't mean they will. The Falcons' backfield work and tight end work are timeshare scenarios. Drake London is severely mispriced for being a talented wide receiver one. How Atlanta will try to win The 3-3 Falcons come into Week 7 off a disappointing 24-16 loss to the Commanders. Despite sporting a minus 21-point differential, the .500 Falcons are only half a game back in what promises to be another year of ineptitude from the NFC South. No one is ever out of the NFC South. Okay, maybe the 0-6 Panthers are out. But one of the other three teams isn't going to need much better than a break-even record to win the division. The head-to-head winners of the Falcons, Bucks, and Saints have a huge edge in a bad division making each of these games highly important from a real-life football perspective. Arthur Smith has turned the Falcons into a team with one of the clearest identities in the league. They have the lowest pass rate over expectation in the league, preferring to ride their strong O-line, fifth-ranked per PFF, by pounding Bijan Robinson and Tyler Algier at the opposition. The Buccaneers have been above average against the run and pass, but spectacular against neither. The Falcons are a do-what-we-do team anyway. There isn't anything in the matchup that would tilt them away from the ground game. Although they love to run, the Falcons play at an above-average pace, 11th, and have used no huddle at one of the top rates in the league. Those two statistics don't gel with the -the ground-and-pound, control-the-clock Falcons. When looking a little deeper, the all-run-no-fun Falcons look more game-flow-dependent than they are typically considered. The Falcons' pass attempt totals in their three wins have been 18, 32, and 37. In their three losses, those figures have been at 38, 31, and 47. The 31 pass attempt loss came against Jacksonville in a game where the Falcons only ran 53 plays. The Falcons want to run the ball, but they are much more willing to cut bait and throw than they were last season. They don't seem to throw more based on matchup, only based on the scoreboard. Predicting a high pass attempt game is predicting that the Falcons are losing. 
Expect a typical Smash Mouth game plan for the Falcons, with the caveat that they will try to catch up through the air if they fall behind. How Tampa Bay will try to win. The 3 and 2 Bucks come into week 7 fresh off a 20 to 6 loss to the Lions, a game in which the outcome never felt in doubt. The Bucks have wins against the Vikings, Bears and Saints, and two multiple score losses against the Eagles and Lions. They have the feel of a team that is good enough to beat weak competition, but not good enough to play with the better teams in the league. That's not the worst spot to be in when you play in the NFC South and in a year that was expected to be a rebuilding season after the departure of Tom Brady. The Bucks are playing at an average pace, 15th, rather than the lightning speed they moved at under Brady. Despite their mid-range pace and above-average no-huddle rate, the Bucks have run the seventh-fewest plays per game. The Bucks are middle of the pack in PROE, 13th, and pass rate, 15th. They are remarkably average. With the departure of Brady, the Bucks lost their identity as a fast-moving passing team and are staying balanced while they try to figure out what works. The Falcons are quickly becoming a pass funnel. They've been solid against the run, 9th in DVOA, but hurt through the air, 29th in DVOA. The Bucks have been one of the most balanced teams in the league in terms of how they want to attack, but they've been far more effective throwing the ball than running. The Bucks' O-line is solid, ranked 10th by PFF, but they're a better pass-blocking unit, highlighted by tackles Tristan Wirfs and Luke Godecki's excellent play. Todd Bowles is not an overly sharp coach, and there is a chance that he won't adjust for the matchup, staying balanced. However, there is also a chance he realizes that the Bucks' strength on offense aligns with the Falcons' weakness on defense, and he comes out firing. Even if the Bucks come out balanced, they've been a figure-out-what-works-in-a-game type team, and there is a good chance passing is what works this week. Expect the Bucks to pass more than normal, even if they don't come out with a pass-first game plan. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a miserable total, 37. That has amazingly been bet down a point and a half early in the week. This game is expected to be a battle between a team who wants to run the ball at the highest rate in the league, unless forced to catch up, and a team that is balanced and might not come out firing against a Falcons' weak pass defense. The spread is under a field goal, so the expectation is this game stays close, which would mean that the Falcons run, run, and run some more against the Bucks' above-average rush defense. If the Bucks don't adjust to a pass-heavy approach this week, they'll end up wasting a lot of plays smashing into the Falcons' solid run defense with their sorry run game. That type of game would result in both sides chewing clock with a lot of inefficient three-yard runs, which, based on the total and spread, is the most likely outcome. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Steelers at the Rams kick off Sunday, October 22nd at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 44. Due to time constraints, the audio for this write-up is not available. Please go to OneWeekSeason.com to read the full write-up for this game. The Cardinals at the Seahawks kick off Sunday, October 22nd at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 44.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson
After a promising start to the 2023 season, Arizona has had a rough three-game stretch where they have lost their last three games by an average of nearly 17 points. Seattle lost a close one in Cincinnati last week following their Week 5 bye, and now sit at 3-2 and two as they play their first home game in nearly a month. Seattle's offensive line is getting healthier, and they appear to be moving towards a three-wide receiver base set, with Jackson Smith-Najigba's role growing coming out of their Week 5 bye. Both teams rank top 10 in the league in seconds per snap, indicating potentially increased tempo for the game environment. Arizona's backfield is currently a mess, with three players involved. How Seattle will try to win Arizona came blazing out of the gates, surprising the naysayers with competitive one-score losses the first two weeks of the season to the Commanders and Giants, and then following that up with an emphatic home win over the previously rolling Cowboys. Since then, however, they have hit more of a wall than a speed bump as they have lost their last three games by 19, 14, and 17 points to the 49ers, Bengals, and Rams respectively. Looking back at those first three weeks now, we can see how the Commanders and Giants have struggled this whole season, and how inconsistent the Cowboys can be. With that in mind, the Jekyll and Hyde that we have seen from this Cardinals team appears to likely have as much, or more, to do with their opponents than their own level of play. Said another way, they are closer to the bottom-tier team we expected coming into the season than the surprisingly competitive team that they had spun the narrative into to start the year. The Cardinals had Kyler Murray return to practice this week, but Josh Dobbs will still start at quarterback for at least another week or two. Dobbs, like Murray, presents a running threat that defenses must account for from the quarterback position and adds an extra dimension to the offense. He has at least 40 rushing yards in four of six games so far this season. At running back, the Cardinals played their first game without James Conner in Week 6 and had a three-headed committee featuring Keontae Ingram, Emari DeMercado, and newly signed Damian Williams. All of them averaged at least four yards per carry, but none stood out. The snap rates were DeMercado 33, Ingram 28, Williams 13. The opportunity, carries plus targets, counts were Ingram 12, Williams 9, DeMercado 3. The Cardinals do have the league's 8th-ranked DVOA rushing offense, but a lot of that has to do with the contributions from Dobbs. This week, they face a Seattle run defense ranked 1st in the NFL in DVOA and yards per carry allowed, while ranking 3rd in PFF run defense grade. Looking at those statistics for the Seahawks' defense along with the uncertainty in the Cardinals' backfield, it is hard to expect much offensive success on the ground for Arizona. That could be a problem for the Cardinals, as they rank 31st in the NFL in pass rate over expectation. The Cardinals have been conservative all year, and they will almost certainly approach this game that way to start. But the loss of Connor, along with an imposing run defense, does not bode well for early offensive success in this game. Be that as it may, Arizona's personnel doesn't really give it the luxury of trying to open things up against a struggling Seattle pass defense. At least... Not until they are forced to. How Arizona will try to win. The Seahawks lost a close one in Cincinnati last week, failing to score on a couple of fourth-quarter drives that looked promising and then stalled out. 
The Seahawks produced 170 more yards of total offense than the Bengals, but just couldn't turn it into points. This week, they face a Cardinals defense that has surrendered an average of 32 points per game over the last three weeks, and ranks in the bottom eight in the league against both the run and the pass by DVOA. The Seahawks' offensive line is getting healthier after starting the year battling injuries. They returned one starter last week and expect to get another one back this week. That is good news for everyone on the offense, as they will be able to be more dynamic and aggressive with their personnel usage and play calling going forward. Week 6 was the most usage that rookie first-round wide receiver Jackson Smith-Najigba has seen in his NFL career as the Seahawks ramped up their usage of 11 personnel, with three wide receivers on the field. JSN was also used down the field more than he has been, after suffering through an incredibly low average depth of target during their first four games. As for offensive approach, Seattle ranks 7th in the NFL in PROE after ranking in the top 10 last year as well. Given the improving state of their offensive line and depth of receiving talent, that trend should be expected to hold this week. The Cardinals' defense has not been particularly strong in either facet of the game, so there is nothing to expect Seattle to be pushed in a particular direction outside of their norm. Kenneth Walker operates as the lead running back and should once again have a solid workload. Arizona's coverage schemes generally work to prevent big plays and make teams work more underneath, and the Seahawks are unlikely to feel the need to force shot plays, making a short and intermediate passing game the likely focus for them this week. We have seen the Bengals and Rams dice them up in those areas the last two weeks, and the Seahawks could follow suit, especially if their receiving core is at full strength. DK Metcalf missed practice on Wednesday with hip and rib injuries. If Metcalf were to miss this game or be severely limited, that may alter the approach of the Seahawks. All things considered, we should expect offensive success from Seattle, but not necessarily explosive plays unless Walker is able to bust free on a long run, or one of the receivers is able to make a play after the catch. Yards after the catch are not necessarily the strong suit of the Seahawks receivers, making it somewhat unlikely they are able to break open the scoring through explosive plays, and will instead rely on efficiency. Likeliest Game Flow The Seahawks are generally not a team that pushes things on their own, but rather usually requires an opponent to push them into shootouts. That seems unlikely early from the Cardinals, who themselves are very conservative. Given the bend-but-don't-break approach from Arizona and the skill sets of Seattle's skill players, the most likely game flow appears to be a slow-moving first half that will rely on Seahawks' red zone efficiency to turn drives into touchdowns. Arizona's conservative, run-heavy offense is likely to struggle moving the ball against Seattle's stingy run defense, and I'd expect them to stay cautious for as long as they can, which basically means until the Seahawks are able to break the scoring open. The implied team totals of this game are Cardinals 18.5 and Seahawks 26. The first half of the game is the most predictable, as we can have a better idea of how teams will approach certain spots, and my feeling is that Arizona is likely to score 0-10 to points in the first half, while Seattle is likely to score 10-17. to 
Obviously, those are just guesses. But it seems like a pretty thin needle to thread for the Cardinals to score two touchdowns or have three scoring drives, and Seattle's conservative offense seems unlikely to post three touchdowns in the first half. The path to this game taking off would likely include either the Cardinals getting a big player turnover in the first half that lets them get out to a lead, or the Seahawks managing to get to 20 points in the first half, which would then force Arizona to air it out. The Packers at the Broncos kick off Sunday, October 22nd at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 45. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. This game's total is shockingly the second highest on the Week 7 main slate, as many of the higher-end teams are on bye or playing in primetime games. Denver's defensive metrics look terrible for the season, but they are coming off a game in which they looked solid against Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs. Green Bay has a 2-3 record and is coming off its bye week hoping to be healthier and more explosive offensively. Rumors are swirling around the Broncos of a potential fire sale and full-scale rebuild. Green Bay has five consecutive very winnable games on its schedule starting with this week and needs this game to build momentum for a playoff run. These teams rank 29th and 32nd in the NFL in plays per game, respectively. How Green Bay will try to win The Packers have a 2-3 record through five games and enter this week off their much-needed bye. They have battled injuries, particularly on the offensive side of the ball, and are looking to get back on track as they pursue a playoff berth in their first season without Aaron Rodgers. The Packers were trounced by the Lions in a Thursday night game in Week 4, and did the trouncing against the Bears in Week 1. Otherwise, they have played three very competitive games with a late comeback win over the Saints, a last-minute field goal loss to the Falcons, and a fourth-quarter loss to the Raiders. On the road, in Denver, we can reasonably expect the Packers not to get blown out, but we also have to question whether they can separate from them on the road. The Broncos rank dead last in PFF coverage grades, and Jordan Love leads the NFL in average intended air yards per attempt, AIYPA, at 9.8 yards. The Broncos' secondary appeared to take a step forward in Week 6 when they held the Chiefs to 19 points in Arrowhead, but the Chiefs' offense has actually been less imposing than usual this season and not particularly aggressive down the field. Christian Watson should finally be all systems go, and adding his explosiveness to this offense along with Romeo Dobbs, Jalen Reed, and Luke Musgrave should be a recipe for this Packers offense to get back on track. It would make sense for Green Bay to lean more toward the pass this week, especially if Aaron Jones is still not 100%. Jones has only played 18 snaps, all in Week 4, since pulling his hamstring in Week 1, and he's still limited at practice so far this week, even coming out of the Packers' bye. A.J. Dillon has been one of the least impressive running backs in the league so far this year, and the other Packers' backs have not done anything with their opportunities. Green Bay ranks 12th in the NFL in pass rate over expectation, and that figure has come with Watson playing in only two games. We should expect that number to hold or ramp up coming out of the bye week, as the coaching staff will have had time to assess what is working and what isn't and make adjustments. Green Bay ranks 27th in rushing offense DVOA and 26th in PFF run blocking grade. 
Meanwhile, the Packers rank 5th in the NFL in yards per pass attempt and 4th in PFF pass blocking grade. They did have some trouble with Max Crosby and the Raiders in Week 5, but this week they face a Broncos team that ranks 31st in the NFL in pressure rate. Therefore, we should expect Love to feel more comfortable in this game and be able to make some plays. How Denver Will Try to Win Denver's offense continues to disappoint for the second year of the Russell Wilson era, but they have at least produced respectable point totals in four of their first six games. Denver notably failed to score 20 points in a game for most of 2022, but it has reached that threshold in four of six games so far this season. The two times they failed were in divisional games against the Raiders and Chiefs, with the Chiefs debacle happening last week when Kansas City got on the board for the first time with just over six minutes remaining in the game. The Broncos now enter a Week 6 home game with home fans getting restless and rumors swirling about Sean Payton tearing everything down for a complete rebuild as the trade deadline looms just a couple of weeks away. Wilson still doesn't look like the player we saw during his Seattle days but I was surprised to see that he actually ranks 7th in the NFL in QB rating. Considering how the Broncos have looked this season, especially against good competition, this makes me question the ratings process as much as anything. This is where looking at things from a variety of angles is helpful. PFF has Wilson graded as the 17th best passer in the NFL this season among QBs who have taken at least 50% of their team's snaps, 31 players qualified. This story checks out, as Wilson has looked fine against the Commanders, Bears, and Raiders, but looked like his 2022 self against the Chiefs, Jets, and Dolphins. This week, he faces a fresh Packers defense that ranks 6th in the NFL in yards per pass attempt allowed and 11th in the league in QB pressure rate. Coincidentally, the three teams that Wilson has struggled against this season currently rank 2nd, 5th, and 7th in pressure rate while the teams he has had success against all rank worse than the Packers. Make of that what you will, but it appears unlikely that we will see a breakthrough from the Broncos this week unless something changes. (coughs) Marvin Mims! (coughs) In the backfield, Javante Williams is rounding into form, and Jaleel McLaughlin has carved out a role for himself. Sam J. P. Ryan is still involved, primarily on passing downs, which has made this a three-headed committee that is frustrating and difficult to predict for fantasy, especially for a team we don't expect much overall offensive production from. This week, they face a Packers run defense that ranks 26th in run defense DVOA, and Denver's team rushing ranks 4th in yards per carry on the season. We should expect to see a reasonable amount of success on the ground for the Broncos that should at least help them move the ball down the field and keep Wilson out of long, down-and-distance situations. Denver's overall play calling is pretty balanced, ranking slightly below average in PROE. This matchup should lend itself to another game where the Broncos enter the game looking to play somewhat conservatively, involving their stable of backs and letting Wilson keep the ball underneath. They may take a few deep shots here and there, but most of the Broncos' passing game early will likely be scripted. Easy throws focused on ball control and moving the sticks. Likeliest Game Flow Denver and Green Bay both rank in the bottom four in the NFL in plays per game, which on the surface makes this look like an unappealing game. However, they rank 13th and 21st in the NFL in seconds per snap. Some of that is likely induced by game flow, 
but there is also reason to believe that each of these teams will have slightly higher volume than they are used to. Green Bay's passing game is the most likely catalyst for this game's tempo to turn up a bit, as Denver has had very few explosive moments this season and the Packers' running game is sluggish, to be kind. If Jones is active and close to his normal self, that would potentially change things for the Packers even more, and it is very possible that his presence will be required for the Green Bay passing attack to have a high level of success. Dylan and his backups have been so bad that even a below-average defense like Denver can probably contain them without diverting many resources from their coverage schemes. The threat and versatility of Jones would make the Packers a difficult cover for the Broncos. All things considered, this game is likely to be fairly competitive, with both teams scoring around 20 points. The Broncos only had higher scoring games against the Bears and Commanders, who both rank among the worst pass defenses in the league. Green Bay is formidable in that area, and we shouldn't expect a huge performance in this one, although the Broncos should at least be able to move the ball and score some points after scoring on only two possessions in their last six quarters of football. Green Bay will have to be the straw that stirs this drink if we want to see an exciting game, although I will add the caveat that the dynamics around this game with Green Bay coming off a bye trying to jumpstart its season and Denver circling the drain and pointing fingers at each other has the potential for the Packers to spring to a big victory in Denver the way they did in Chicago to start the season. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Chargers at the Chiefs kick off Sunday, October 22nd at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 48. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Kansas City has the opportunity to take full control of the AFC West and separate themselves with a victory this week. The Chargers have lost three games by a combined eight points, with the opposing team having their winning score come in the last two minutes 30 seconds of regulation or overtime in every instance. The Chiefs have a significant rest advantage in this game, as they played last Thursday night, while the Chargers are playing on a short week after a home loss on Monday night against Dallas. Kansas City's offense has not been as good as advertised this year, scoring at a much lower clip and moving the ball with less efficiency than we have seen in years past. Both offenses rank in the top five in the NFL in situation-neutral pass rate. How Los Angeles will try to win. The Chargers continue to be the Chargers, finding new and uninspiring ways to lose games in 2023. Through six weeks, the Chargers have already had their bye and have a 2-3 and three record, with all three losses happening at the end of games and being losses of three points or less. The Chargers' offense has been solid most of the year, scoring 24 or more points in every game but one but their defense has struggled and not allowed them to turn their points into wins. Star running back Austin Eckler returned to the lineup following the team's Week 5 bye and had a solid but not spectacular outing against the Cowboys on Monday night. Los Angeles plays at a brisk pace, with the fourth-fewest seconds per play in the league through five weeks, and ranks fifth in the NFL in pass rate over expectation. Now that Eckler has returned, it is possible that the Chargers will return to a more balanced offensive approach, 
especially since they are struggling to replace Mike Williams, who was lost for the season with a knee injury in their receiving core. Remember that in Week 1, the Chargers faced the Dolphins, and their rushing offense had a field day with Austin Eckler and Joshua Kelly combining for over 200 rushing yards on 32 attempts. Given their success in that game, along with the Chiefs' defense being stronger against the pass than they are against the run, it would not be shocking for offensive coordinator Kellen Moore to lean on his offensive line and running game more in this spot. The Chiefs rank in the top six in the NFL in pass defense DVOA and opponents' yards per pass attempt, while ranking worse than 20th in run defense DVOA, yards per carry allowed, and PFF run defense grade. There is also the added bonus of keeping Patrick Mahomes on the sideline for a larger portion of the game if they are able to keep the play clock moving and make their drives methodical marches down the field. While running the ball more may help extend drives to keep Mahomes off the field, it would likely be hard for the Chiefs to find a lot of explosive pass plays downfield, even if they wanted to. Keenan Allen continues to be the alpha wide receiver in this offense, but the loss of Mike Williams and the slow development of rookie first-round pick Quinton Johnson have crippled their ability to challenge teams deep. The Chargers will work to utilize the short and intermediate passing game as well as their running game to control the clock and frustrate the Kansas City offense as it sits on the sideline. Additionally, the Chiefs are still a very good offense with an all-world QB but they haven't shown the usual consistent offensive explosiveness we have become accustomed to so far this season. With that in mind, the Chargers are likely to feel more comfortable with a ball control approach early in this game than they would have in the past. How Kansas City Will Try to Win As we have discussed in past weeks, the Chiefs' offense is built primarily around their running backs and tight ends, while their receivers are a bit of an afterthought. In last week's ugly win over the Broncos, Chiefs running backs and tight ends accounted for 21 of 30 Patrick Mahomes completions. In total, the Chiefs had 61 offensive plays that were either Patrick Mahomes pass attempts or non-Mahomes rushing attempts. Only 18 of those plays were directed at wide receivers, while 43 were focused on running backs and tight ends. Isaiah Pacheco and Travis Kelsey obviously account for the largest percentage of usage for this team as we can comfortably expect Kelsey to have 8 to 12 targets and Pacheco to have 15 to 20 opportunities. Even with their heavy usage, the Chiefs will still have at least one other tight end, Noah Gray, and two running backs, Jarek McKinnon and Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, involved in some capacity. Wide receiver Justin Watson was playing a lot and being targeted downfield, but has been removed from the equation. Rookie Rasheed Rice is emerging and seems to be the best of the bunch amongst the wide receiver group, and his role continues to grow as he played the most snaps of his career last week, excluding a Week 3 blowout of the Bears where he got extra snaps in garbage time. He has a 75% catch rate and has at least four targets in five of six games so far this year. With Watson out and Rice being the most efficient player in the group, it would make sense for his role to expand, especially as the Chiefs come off their mini-bye following their Thursday night game in Week 6. Kadarius Toney, Sky Moore, and Marquez Valdez-Scantling will all be involved and rotate snaps, although none have proven very effective so far. The result of the Chiefs' current personnel usage is that Patrick Mahomes ranks 31st in the NFL in average intended air yards per pass attempt at only 6.5 yards. 
A large portion of his passes have been targeted within a couple of yards of the line of scrimmage, and this previously explosive Chiefs offense has only two games with over 300 passing yards from Mahomes this season. This season, Mahomes also has his lowest yards per attempt of his career at just 7.1 after averaging over 8.0 yards per attempt for his career entering 2023. The Chargers' defense has struggled to different degrees and at different times this season against both the pass and the run. The Chiefs are unlikely to approach this game shifting gears from what they have been doing, as they should believe they can be effective and move the ball against Los Angeles, and they trust their defense more than they have in past years. Pacheco and Kelsey will likely be the focal points once again, with an increase in Rice's role potentially opening up the offense a bit from what we have seen to date. Likeliest Game Flow These teams have had some very high-scoring games over the years, but this Chiefs defense is a different animal than it has been for most of the Patrick Mahomes era. The Chiefs have only allowed an opponent to score 20 offensive points once this season. The Lions scored 21 but had a pick 6, and the Jets scored 20 but had a safety, and have held half of their opponents to 10 points or less. Granted, their schedule has not been overly imposing, as they have picked on the Broncos, Jets, and Bears. The Chargers' offense is much better than those teams, but is relatively similar on paper to the Lions and Jaguars, who scored 14 and 9 offensive points, respectively, against Kansas City. With that in mind, it feels like this game has a lot of paths to being played in the low 20s rather than breaking into a shootout, as we have seen in past years. The Chargers are likely to execute a more conservative game plan based on the combination of a good and physical Chiefs defense and a less imposing than normal Chiefs offense. The Chiefs seem relatively content to win ugly at this point, clearly having a sole focus on winning games rather than flexing their offensive muscles. Kansas City is less mistake-prone and has Patrick Mahomes while also having a better and more physical defense. Those factors make it likely that this game stays within a score or the Chiefs get out to a lead. Neither team has shown a great willingness to push the ball down the field, and their personnel is not really built to do so consistently, so longer drives are likely to be required in order for these teams to score. This game's most likely outcome would appear to be similar to the Chargers game against the Cowboys last week, a 20-17 Dallas win or the Chiefs game against the Vikings a couple of weeks ago, a 27-20 Chiefs victory. There is always room for upside in a game with two quarterbacks of this caliber, but it will take some explosive plays from these teams that we haven't seen much of this year, and or regression from the Chiefs defense to make that happen. <laughs>